Hello and welcome to another episode of the Gradient Podcast. We interview various people who research, build, use, or think about AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir, and in this episode, I am very excited to be interviewing Professor Sebastian Roska. Sebastian is an assistant professor of statistics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and lead AI educator at Lightning AI. He has written two best-selling books, Python Machine Learning and Machine Learning with PyTorch and Scikit-Learn. Sebastian is a truly incredible educator, and if you have seen any of the wealth of educational content he has put out online, you're probably well aware of his, his talents and his ability to really bring together high-level conceptual information with low-level mathematical details. This was a great opportunity to learn from him, not only the way he approaches being an educator, but also a learner. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you yourself became interested in AI. I and many other people are pretty familiar with your AI education work, and I think that you do an incredible job of explaining concepts and ideas. And so I'd love to hear your path to how you got interested in AI in the first place and then how you kind of got to where you are. Yeah, so that is an interesting question. So my journey goes way back, a little bit more than four years, uh, a little bit older than The Gradient, although I regularly uh, read articles on The Gradient. So it's something I maybe at least... Uh, every two weeks, sent to my uh, e- ebook reader and uh, read. Uh, so there's usually something interesting. So yeah, what where I got into AI that must have been like 2010, 12 ish. Uh, I took a class back in grad school on um, statistical pattern recognition, and I took that class because I was working in uh, computational biology, and we have a lot of let's say interesting data sets and. It would have been interesting, so that, that was my goal, to learn about how to automate automate like uh, decision-making. Like you have certain data sets, you want to predict something, which is uh, why I took this class. It was very heavily based uh, on uh, Bayesian methods. Um, uh, I think it was like, I mean, of course, starting with uh, base classifiers, uh, naive base classifiers, um, and then uh, Bayesian networks. Um, and from there, I think it was also when... Um, the Coursera class by Andrew Ang was uh, launched, or I mean, Coursera itself was launched like 2012-ish. So I took that shortly uh, afterwards, after completing that class. It was kind of like complementary because um, the class I took in, in uh, grad school was more focused on Bayesian methods and Andrew Ang's class was <laughs> everything but Bayesian methods. And it gave me really the taste of like what machine learning is like, like uh, um, from a logistic regression to SVMs and neural networks. Uh, and ensemble methods, I think. I mean, it's been 10 years, but I think that was like uh, what it covered back then. And yeah, from there on, I was just um, applying these methods and reading more, getting into deep learning. I started using Theano back then, uh, made the journey to TensorFlow, now using PyTorch. So I've been, yeah, I, I learned all of these, let's say, uh, conceptual things uh, from classes. But then really, I learned a lot by doing things like working on small projects and applying these methods in my work, um, working with various data sets. Also like um, taking a data mining class, which was, uh, I would say, also very worthwhile um, learning about um, uh, uh, pattern, uh, sorry, 
frequent pattern mining and so forth and uh, yeah these types of algorithms so i th think i got like the broad introduction to all these topics in the beginning but then really try to be more hands-on and learning while doing which personally was my preferred journey because i'm i like doing things uh i would say i'm not like the most patient uh, person and Yeah, diving into uh, theoretical things, uh, coming up with proofs. I do this occasionally, but this is not something I do every day. I'm more like coming from from the tinkering side, I would say. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think that the sentiment you're expressing seems to have been reflected in a lot of the deep learning educational content we see these days. So, like Fast.ai, for example, very much this top-down approach. I think that. From my experience, your educational materials as well do a really good job of trying to combine that top down with you give very good insights into what is also going on with the mathematics. So, for example, I think that you had a section on like the transformer architecture in your online deep learning class, which I thought did a really good job of explaining what is going on mathematically here, along with, you know, here are some of the implementations, the high level architectural details. And so you mentioned kind of your hands-on process, but could you maybe dive a little bit deeper into what your process is for picking up some of these new deep learning concepts? You know, there's so much to keep up with, right? And I think that a lot of people mm -hmm. sometimes struggle with that. How do I actually effectively learn things in this space? So I'd love to know a little bit more about how, how you do it. Um, yeah, this is like a very interesting and challenging um thing keeping up with um, yeah what's currently happening and i think you know over the years i learned to be more um selective i think it comes with time that uh in the beginning you want to know it all you want to learn everything and because it's just interesting and everything seems exciting but then uh, at some point you realize okay the day only has 24 hours i have to prioritize here and i also have to get work done so i can't just i mean read things uh, the whole day so What I uh, so I also it's a as a context I should mention I was a moderator for Archive the machine learning uh, category um, CSLG for Archive and what we did there is we were looking over all the publications each day to just make sure the category is correct and uh, so forth. Sometimes we would check certain articles if they looked like suspicious or there's something wrong or the title was somehow weird. We would like check the PDF and make sure everything looks okay. But there you get exposed to so many articles so. It ranges between, uh, let's say, at least 100 new articles to up to two to 300, depending on whether there's a conference uh, coming up soon. And yeah, and then you realize, okay, there's way more interesting stuff than you can keep up with. And this is just uh, archive uh, research articles. There are so many interesting blog posts and videos too. So my approach right now really is um, I have a notebook on my computer where I have a page for each topic. One could be computer vision with convolutional networks. One is a computer vision with transformers. One is natural language transformers and so forth. So I have, or even general things about deep learning, evaluation metrics, um, interpretability and so forth. I have, let's say 40, 50 uh, sub uh, pages there. And I just keep collecting at that point because um, there's only so much, let's say you can read. I usually keep collecting. And then each week I pick out two to three articles that I read. Um, it could be, I mean, 
randomly, but I usually just scan through this. Oh, this uh, was an interesting one. And you know, this bookmarking strategy, I feel like this helps you keep focused because often you bookmark things that look uh, interesting, but then in the grand scheme of things, um, there are way more interesting things you could read that you already have on your list. So it's in that case, um, you're kind of like preventing that you have this fear of missing out because you keep track of everything, but then also it helps me with not getting distracted by the article of the day that I really just read those that I feel like are most uh, interesting or most important. And at the same time, what helps me then also really learning about a topic is uh, choosing like a sub area, like something I'm really interested in at that time. So for example, a few months ago, I was uh, really interested in revisiting the topic of confidence intervals. So I read all the methods I had bookmarked and also um, just compiling things and writing up some code examples, really like revisiting a topic deeply. And when I do that, I usually start with a big picture concept, like just revisiting what's the problem here, what are we trying to solve? And then really just making even figures uh, for myself. Like, I mean, confidence intervals is maybe not the best examples. There is not that much interesting in terms of what you can do with figures. But let's say coming back to what you mentioned with the transformers, like I would uh, sketch out things and then come up with uh, some code examples for myself. So in this lecture, the lecture was actually a dry run for a book chapter for my new book uh, that came later. So uh, in the lecture, I don't think I had many uh, hands-on code examples. This was more based on the illustrations. And then later, um, refining that, uh, adding code examples was really like making it, I would say, more um, whole, <laughs> the, the explanation making it more, I would say, comprehensive, but also having both uh, concepts and code examples. And while coding up these examples, I feel like these are multiple layers of uh, how you understand a topic. You start with uh, reading, you, you compile resources, you read, then you try to make sketches, and then you realize, okay, I'm missing this uh, certain point. So you would go back to an earlier article and think about it again and so forth. And then when you do the code examples, it's yet another more, let's say, detailed level of understanding because the, the sketching gives you an understanding or tries to reinforce the understanding of the big concept to see if you understand everything and if you can put or summarize it in a visual way. And then uh, coding it up, you need more detail. You need to know the exact dimensions of the inputs and these types of things. I feel like these all go together where you yeah, you build your own, let's say, uh, learning path in a way. It's kind of like when you think back of college, it's almost like designing your own homework assignments that you go from uh, summarize this uh, and then uh, apply this, implement this, right? So in that case, that's usually how I learn, but... It depends also on the topic. Not every, let's say, topic requires a code example. Again, it comes back to prioritization that, yeah, I mean, it's probably not feasible to implement everything. And if you learn about, let's say, um, I mean, maybe SVMs or something like kernel SVMs, maybe there it's like it would take too much time to implement that. You can use scikit-learn in practice. Uh, however, it might make uh, sense to implement a linear SVM or something just for the sake of uh, understanding how an SVM works. So it's like, again, coming back to prioritization, but um, yeah, that's in a nutshell how I do things. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. I like how you thought about or pointed out that there's different levels of abstraction of understanding these things. There's a high-level concept. You can dig a little bit deeper into some of the mathematical underpinnings. I kind of understand what the task is, how it's formally represented, what the loss functions look like. And then as you dig deeper, as you pointed out, there's the the actual coding of it. In a lot of cases, 
you are worrying about some very small things. I might start having off by one errors. And so you kind of hop between these different levels. One thing I, I kind of wanted to tease out from what you just said there is you mentioned it might not be necessary to dive all the way to the bottom in terms of really getting hands-on and coding something up. And so I wonder if you think about or change your approach to learning a concept, uh, depending on, I guess, the the purpose that you are learning it for. And I can imagine, you know, these might look like aiding in your own research versus it's a topic you want to teach someone else versus, oh, you know, I just came across a set of papers that I want to read for fun because I find that cool. So I'm curious if your approach changes between those. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, if it's, let's say, for a research project, um, if I'm trying to develop something new, uh, I'm trying to understand as best I, as I can uh, related approaches, for example, just to make sure I'm not um, duplicating any efforts, but also to make sure I really uh, know what I'm doing here compared to just maybe keeping up. So I, I must honestly say I'm currently not uh, working on a new uh, uh, transformer architecture, a new um, architecture for, let's say, um, natural language processing with transformers. I'm more like using transformers. So in that sense, yeah, I'm I'm trying to implement them, but let's say I don't worry about so much about efficiency and uh, how I distribute the training myself, like how to code up all these details. That is something the libraries can take take care of at that point. It's I'm more interested in let's say the big picture understanding, where I uh more try I try more like to come up with a with a rudimentary or simplistic um, implementation. And for some applications, or let's say for let's say, computer vision transformers, those I have not implemented myself yet. The reason is, well, I get a good idea of how they work. I looked at conceptual pictures or drawings, and I know how transformers work. And, well, it is in a sense, uh, there are some tricks here and there, but in a sense, it's the same idea. And I would say it would take me some extra time to implement them. And, yeah, at this point, it's not on my priority list. So I have, like, a priority list. I, I wish I had more time and I could implement everything, but... Well, if I don't really des design a new architecture, I, I can use a library. I don't have to implement it myself if I, let's say, understand how it works. You know, So in, in that sense, um, yeah, it depends. You have to prioritize. Is it really... Uh, you, you don't have to also... That's, I think, an important thing. You don't have to understand everything in detail. It's good to know what's out there. So in case you need it, then you can dive... So you know it exists and then you can dive in. But as long, let's say, as you don't actively use it, well, there's not... You don't have to, let's say, understand everything because I think this would be very stressful. It's uh, machine learning is such a big field. You would be infinitely busy just catching up with uh, what other people are doing versus doing something yourself. Yeah, you could you could definitely spend your time 24-7 just <laughs> keeping up with what the latest and greatest is. And I think even some subfields of ML. But I really like that, that heuristic for considering what is useful and worth my time to learn and to learn deeply and then prioritizing where to, to dive deep. Because as you pointed out, you've got your set of priorities and that is based off of what you were doing at the time. I am conducting this research project. I am writing this book, developing this educational content. And so that is going to almost naturally impose a set of priorities right on the sorts of topics that are going to be most beneficial. And then that in turn drives, okay, how deeply do I need to engage with this set of things? If I'm trying to teach somebody else how a transformer works as deeply as possible, then 
maybe diving into the implementational details is helpful there. But as you said, if I'm conducting a research project where I'm more focused on an application of VITs and transformers to some problem of interest, then maybe I don't need to worry about all the low-level details. I think that's a really good heuristic, and it's kind of a nice thing to sort of formalize and articulate. So now that we're on the topic of your, your research and priorities, I'd love to talk about a couple of the things you've worked on. Let's start with this topic of ordinal regression, which I think you've published a couple of papers on by this point. Could you give just a quick introduction to what that is? Yeah, so that's a smooth transition from learning to doing. So, um, yeah, so here in uh, the ordinal regression setting, what we have is, let's say, think about classification, but with labels that have a natural order. So an example would be uh, Amazon customer ratings, where you have one to five stars. So you can use a classification algorithm for that to classify, let's say, uh, customer satisfaction uh, based on the number of stars. Or the same thing is true for, let's say, insurance companies having a, a scale for assessing uh, damage uh, of buildings. So like severe damage, moderate damage, no damage, um, and things like that. Or for diseases, like no disease, moderate, uh, severe, very severe, where you have something where you can classify things, but you have more information than just classification. So in this case, uh, there is a class of methods in classical statistics um, called uh, ordinal regression. And this sits between regular regression uh, and um, classifications. In regular regression, the difference is that we have a numeric, uh, we have basically, you can think of it in a programming context as floats or as real numbers that you want to predict. So let's say I want to predict the height of a person, it's in centimeters or inches or feet, depending on uh, which country you're in. And I can say, for example, the difference between 100 and 150 centimeters is something I can quantify. It's like a 50 centimeter difference. And then from 150 to 200 centimeters. So I, I can really quantify things here. Uh, whereas, um, for example, in ordinal regression, I have usually problems where I have a difference that is not quantifiable. It's like an arbitrary distance. So, for example, coming back to the star ratings on Amazon, I can say, okay, the difference between one and three stars is two stars, and I can compare that to three to five stars, which is also the difference between three and five is also two. However, it's kind of like um, more subtle than that, I would say. It's really hard to compare. can't really say the difference between one and three is the same as uh, three and five. Maybe in this case, um, yeah, you can maybe wing it and also still use a regular regression, but there are other problems like, uh, let's say, the damage uh, to the building. I mean, some people rate the building, let's say, as severely damaged, another building as moderately damaged. But what is the difference? Is it like three more shattered windows or is it more like, I don't know, like um, the stone is loose or the building is crumbling? It's kind of like an arbitrary um, distance, but it's hard to quantify. Or think about, let's say, rating movies. I have a movie I hate, a movie that is okay, and a movie I really like. But I can't really tell you, I don't know, this movie is 2.2 better than the other movie. It's more like an arbitrary uh, distance between the two movies and yeah there's a subjective quality yeah yeah right that's a good point where uh, okay if you have a data set it should be uh, consistently subjective so if you have moderate disease um well it should be somewhat comparable but on the other hand it's really yeah it would be hard to put a number on it what is the difference between moderate and severe disease it's it's more subjective in a way 
And in this case, um, I mean, there are many real-world examples where we have such information where we can't really put an exact number on it. It's really like, okay, there's a difference. It's a, You can also think of ranking things, like one is more than the other, but I don't know how much more. Uh, even for search results, uh, if you type in a search result, one result is more relevant than the other, but it's like, okay, how much more relevant? There are companies who develop metrics around it, but in a way, it's still kind of like uh, hard to put a number on it, um, right? So in this case, this is just like a whole set of problems where ordinal regression is really useful. It's essentially a classification with ordering information. And uh, yeah, I can tell you more of how or what we do there because I mentioned in the beginning um, that it's a statistic, uh, classic statistics problem. But yeah, we basically try to make it work better for deep neural networks. So the, the focus here was really um, how can we take an existing deep neural network, let it be uh, VGG, ResNet, could also be a vision transformer. Basically, how can we take an existing neural network, could also be an RNN, anything, and with very few lines of changes in, in terms of the code, how can we really turn this into an ordinary regression model? Because, you know, if you have a problem and you can use or you are using a classifier and I tell you, why don't you consider an ordinary regression model? You don't want to just try a completely different model or develop a special purpose architecture. Really, you want to just ideally change the loss function similarly how to you how you would change an activation function and turn this uh, classification model into a regression model it's it's essentially a hyperparameter almost so how do you make this choice a hyperparameter that you can just try out and see if it works maybe it works maybe not it's it doesn't cost you much it's just uh, as simple as it can be to change uh, the setting basically yeah i've got a, a couple of follow-on questions based off of your initial mm -hmm. description there but let's start with this one can you just give us a high-level conceptual overview of what exactly is the process whereby I take my pre-trained deep neural network, VGG, VIT, and transform mm -hmm. it into this ordinal regression model. Yeah, so uh, our methods that we developed, they go back to something called a binary extension framework. So this essentially means if you think about a multi-class classification problem, let's say um, we have these five uh, ratings, one to five, where one is mild and five is most severe. Um, so I want to predict that something from, or let's say no, mild, moderate, severe, very severe, I have five outputs. And instead of having this as a classification problem where I have labels from, let's say, zero to four or one to five, what I do is I make this change that I consider each output node in the output layer of the network Instead of using a softmax function here, I would just use a sigmoid function where each, but in addition to that, you turn each output node into a binary classification problem. So you say essentially the first output node is you're saying, is this rating greater than rating zero? The second node is, is this rating, uh, rating greater than one? You're asking binary questions. So you're turning this multi-class classification problem into a multiple binary classification problems. And based on that, so the only difference you have to do is you have to convert the input label. Let's say the input label is five. You convert this into uh, five uh, zero one integers. This is actually in the code I have automatically handled. You don't even have to worry about this. Uh, so the only thing you do is you change if you use PyTorch, you don't even include usually the softmax in the output layer. The only thing you really change is the loss function. So in this loss function, you have multiple binary classifiers essentially in the output nodes, and and this is essentially it. So you ask the you are asking the question: Is this greater than zero? Is this greater than one? 
Is this greater than two? And so forth. And uh, if the answer is yes, if you say it's greater than zero, it's greater than one, and it's greater than two, it's not greater than three, the prediction would be rating three. So you're just looking at the answers, the number of yeses and nos, essentially. And this is essentially it. So this is how you can turn a classification network into an ordinal regression framework using this binary extension framework. And yeah, there are multiple ways for designing the loss function then, which is kind of what we focused on. But in a nutshell, it's essentially one, I mean, I should say one approach, maybe the easiest approach is really this binary extension framework. This just reminds me a little bit of like a one-hot encoding representation, although of course in some cases you'll you'll definitely have multiple ones. One question I have here, maybe on the more applied side of this, is you mentioned that this is a pretty generic method, so I can take pretty much any pre-trained neural network and mm -hmm. graft it onto this ordinal regression problem. So if I start with a, a different pre-trained network, did you find that the specific network, the task that it might have been pre-trained on, did that carry any weight in terms of the performance that it got an ordinal regression tasks downstream or the types of ordinal regression tasks you were able to apply it to? Um, so if I may step, uh, take a step back. So you mentioned it's uh, similar to a one-hot encoding uh, with multiple ones. Yeah, it is more like a multi-hot encoding where you have multiple ones, uh, except the only case where you would have a one-hot encoding is if the first rating would be a one. Because um, you have, uh, so in this, I'm saying this because this was the trick. You wanted to make this consistent. So uh, you want these outputs to be consistent. Essentially, when you say it's greater than one, it's greater than two, it's greater than four, then it should also be greater than three. Because uh, so you want you you can't have like these kind of contradictions. I mean, you can have these contradictions, and then what was uh, what a previous method. Um, and so uh, in, internally in our company, we call that the skateboard method, where you develop something and you make it work. It's your first, let's say, approach and it works great. But then over time, you improve it. So the first network, it was not by us, but the first network, uh, the authors, if I recall it correctly, they were uh, the first, the last name of the first author was NIU. So let's say NIU and colleagues uh, developed this network that worked incredibly well for ordinal regression, but it has this inconsistency and we focused on developing different methods to make it consistent so we have like these multiple ones and then uh maybe getting back to the question of uh, the pre-trained networks i also wanted to clarify so in this case actually we trained the networks from scratch because these were relatively uh i would say different data sets and they were also relatively small so it was feasible to train it from scratch but nothing prevents you from let's say pre-training the network or using a pre-trained network on, let's say, ImageNet, and then just changing the output layer. And in fact, people who adopted our methods in practice, they did actually that. So they used some of them. We have the methods uh, on... Um, so I have a GitHub repository with links to the pre-trained models. Some people use the pre-trained models and um, fine-tune them to something else. But you can also, like you said, you can just use from Torch uh, Vision Hub or something, you can use any model pre-trained on or ImageNet, and you can just change the output layer and use the loss function that we provide, and that's it. You you can really use a pre-trained network. You don't have to redesign the architecture, for example. You don't have to. You can train your network from scratch, but whatever your heart desires, essentially. So in that case, I can't specifically say 
how important the pre-training task is. Uh, I would say there is no reason to believe it is different than compared to other classification networks. So I remember there was this paper, it was like a couple of months ago. They looked at um, self-supervised learning though, but they found when I remember correctly that the more similar data set was to the target data set, even though they used self-supervised learning, which is different, let's say from the target classification task, the more similar the data set was, the more, let's say, benefit you got out of the uh, pre-trained network. And I think the same is true here too. So if you have a data set that is, uh, for example, a popular benchmark data set for that is um, age classification. So my reasoning would be, if you care about age classification, pre-training the network on different age data sets or a combined age data set would give you a better performance than, let's say, pre-training a network on ImageNet and then fine-tuning it on age prediction. But that's a hypothesis. I, I'm pretty I'm pretty confident this should hold. Uh, but yeah, uh, I've not done these experiments myself. That makes a lot of intuitive sense. And yeah, maybe maybe some listener will follow up and see how that works. Let's, before we move on to your work on semi-adversarial networks, there, I know, is a follow-up to your original paper on this rank-consistent framework. And in this, you did ordinal regression, but had this additional consideration of conditional training data sets. Can you give me just a quick mm. overview of what was going on in that paper? Ah, uh, Yeah, so good question, good question. So um, I mentioned briefly the limitation of this rank inconsistency of the original method, uh, which was, I think, 2016 in CVPR. That was not our method. Our method was basically a follow-up to see if we uh, can an already uh, take an already great method and make it even better, where we proposed this rank, uh, rank consistency to fix the rank inconsistency. And here what we did is we uh, had a weight-sharing constraint on the output layer, which means um, it was a, kind of like a workaround. Uh, we had like a mathematical proof for that, why that uh, results in rank consistency. But having a weight sharing constraint, which means all the weights in the output layer are different besides the bias, bias units, that means it kind of reduces the capacity of the network. It makes it, let's say, a little bit constrained. In hindsight, we found this was maybe not a necessarily always a bad thing because first it performs better than the rank inconsistent method, but also it um, overfits less, less, there's less overfitting. And that's probably because of this restriction. It's, uh, it's kind of like a regularizing effect almost. However, for certain tasks, uh, a reduced capacity means, yeah, you're maybe not getting the full performance out of your neural network architecture because, well, you have this very powerful feature extractor, but then in the output layer, you have this very um, simple yeah, uh, method. It's even simpler than, let's say, a linear model like a softmax regression because you have weight sharing. You only have the same weight for all the tasks um, except the bias units. So what we try to do is we try to think about a different way we can solve this rank inconsistency issue by not having a weight sharing constraint. And what we did here is we, yeah, we had a method where we compute conditional probabilities um, at each output node. So the conditional probability would be, uh, let's say, if we think about the second node, it's like, what's the probability that the input data point has a rating greater than two, given that the rating is already greater than one based on the first node. So it's in a, in a sense like uh, taking this condition into account and then if you have these conditional probabilities for each output node, you can uh, use the chain rule for probabilities or 
other people call it the general product rule in statistics, where you can just multiply these conditional probabilities to get an unconditional probability. So the probability that the rating exceeds a certain rank. And so here, we, in order to compute these conditional probabilities correctly, uh, yeah, we used conditional training subsets where you have to have, uh, let's say, reduced training sets depending on what task you train. If you train uh, greater than, um, if you train the task for is this rating greater than three, so you uh, basically reduce based on the condition that it has to be greater than two. You, you reduce the size of the training set. So all the ones where you say it's not greater than two, you remove them for, from the training subsets for that given node, essentially. So there's some, let's say, more involved uh, code. Uh, the code is more involved for that. You have some, uh, I would say, relatively ugly for, lo for loops in Python uh, when you create these training subsets for training the neural network. But on the other hand, you train it on certain nodes on less data, which in that sense, in in consequence, it doesn't make the training much slower. Um, and also, it doesn't really affect the performance. On the contrary, like the predictive performance, on the contrary, it performs actually better than the other two methods. So this kind of uh, trick makes the the uh, nodes, the outputs rank consistent. And you have a slightly more expensive loss function because of the selection of the training subsets. But then since some of them are subsets, um, training set is smaller, you also gain kind of predictive performance. So it's kind of like, I feel like almost balancing each other out. Oh, I may, maybe should also say the reason why it's now rank consistent is if you think about conditional probabilities, a probability is a value between zero and one. And if you multiply uh, two numbers uh, between zero and one, it can't exceed uh, one, the original value, right? So if you have the original value of one, you multiply it by 0.9, you can't have something that is greater than the original value. It will be 0.9. So in that case, um, they they have to be ordered. The output nodes have to be ordered they, because you have this condition on the previous output node. You can't really have uh, an outlier where you have a probability that is higher than the previous node where you get this rank inconsistency. So in that case, it's a very, um, I would say, intuitive way of solving the rank inconsistency without any fancy workaround, essentially. Yeah, I, I really like the the intuitiveness of this method. It definitely... It's kind of neat how you're able to impose this structure whereby we have a pretty natural probabilistic interpretation by virtue of, okay, I've, I've restricted the data set, so automatically I have this condition of, I know that my, uh, my value, my rank is greater than a certain point, and then I kind of have the prediction problem on top of that. That's really neat. So the other part of your research I was hoping we could discuss was this other thing you've worked on, semi-adversarial networks. Could you give me a quick overview of what these are? Yeah, it's a very interesting um, history behind it. I think, I must say, uh, I don't want to claim anything, but I think we had this idea a very long time ago. It was, uh, let's say, the same time around um, GANs were developed, but uh, it's a, I would say it's slightly different. Um, it is, in a way, uh, almost like... I would say it as a uh, see it as a constraint optimization approach using deep neural networks. So I'm not the let's say uh, most sophisticated uh, mathematician working on let's say constraint optimization methods. However, this was like really a workaround using deep neural networks to solve complicated um, constraint optimization, nonlinear nonlinear uh, constraint optimization problems. 
So the idea, the big picture idea is you have something you want to, uh, and this, uh, so this goes back to 2016, I think, when we had our first paper on that. Maybe it was published one year later or something. It's not a new idea that we, I mean, we worked on it for several years. So the idea was essentially you have, and I had this uh, originally planned for like a computational biology project where we had, uh, let's say, a bioactivity scores, and we wanted to optimize the bioactivity score of a certain molecule uh, given that we make certain changes to the molecule, minimal changes. Because if you think about a uh, chemistry context, usually in drug discovery, we want to find some molecule that has a certain property, let's say bioactivity, or let's say it should target a certain protein to inhibit a certain disease and so forth. And usually then uh, you try to optimize these molecules, maybe let's say make them less toxic or make them more potent or some something like that. So you don't want to really change the overall structure of that molecule. You want to make a minimal change, um, but you want to maximize the desired outcome. So it's kind of like this kind of like constraint optimization problem in that sense. And um, yeah, it was a little bit complicated. It was slightly before graph neural networks were a big thing. So yeah, I mean, we tried that a little bit, uh, but it was back then beyond, let's say, my uh, cap uh, capacity to implement all of that in, in a uh, graph neural network context with the data we had. So I had a colleague, uh, Vahid Miralili, who worked in biometrics, and they had a very similar problem. So they wanted to um, hide specific information from face images while still having these face images uh, being usable. So for example, in this context, it was a gender. So it was a network, or they had a previous approach and we wanted to, yet, let's say, use new networks to get better results where we adopted this idea of the semi-adversary network I had before for the computational biology context. So here, what we tried to do was um, like, removing the gender information from the uh, face images so that no, let's say, company who is involved in data mining could just, let's say, run an algorithm over images and then extract the data out of it without having consent uh, of the people whose face is in the image. So basically making the images more private. However, at the same time, you wanted still the face images to be visible. So there are applications that's, um, I mean, that's maybe not the typical application, but let's think about a passport scanner at the airport where you still should do or should be able to match two faces. Like if someone scans the password, it should match the face on the video camera. But at the same time, there should not be more information than that. Uh, no person should be able to extract, let's say, personal information like health information, gender information, and these types of things. Um, so in that case, it was a problem that we wanted to optimize uh, the hiding of information while still making minimal changes to the input image. And how we did that was essentially having a classifier. You can think of it as uh, similar to a GAN. And again, you have a discriminator. Here we have a classifier that outputs our, let's say, target function. For, in the, for instance, let's say a gender classification. And um, here you wanted to have maximum entropy that there is no, no label. I mean, it's like evenly distributed, the output. The If you have, let's say, a binary classifier for something, this would be... Uh, 50-50, essentially. So similar to the discriminator and again. And the other network was an autoencoder where you minimize the changes from input to output. Um, so you make minimal changes. And um, 
in the face recognition example, we had a third component, which was a face uh, recognition classifier, which is kind of having a similar function as the um, autoencoder. So, and this was so that you don't accidentally generate adversarial networks, uh, sorry, sort of like a real adversarial um, examples where you make one or two pixel changes, but also destroy the whole face matching essentially. So yeah, in, in a sense, you can think of it broadly as a, a way to uh, optimize certain things with neural networks. And um, for example, you can apply that. Uh, that is something I worked on. I'm not working on it currently anymore because I have too many projects. But if someone wants to work on it, uh, for example, for directed evolution, if you think about optimizing a protein, uh, let's say a sequence, you have a sequence of a protein, you use a transformer network. How do we make minimal changes to the sequence so that the protein is still intact? while maximizing a certain score that you have, like a bioactivity score or something like that. Yeah, I, I like that. This is a, a really general framework. So it seems like there's kind of this three-part process we've got going on here, right? I am generating a perturbation of an original source of data. So maybe I have an image, maybe I have a protein sequence. And then on top of that, there's these two additional things of one, maybe I'd like to confound something. So I, as you said, I'd like to maybe remove information about gender that a classifier could pick up on. But then this additional part, so as to make sure it's not actually adversarial, I have to include this other component of let's actually preserve the overall integrity so that I still recognize like this picture of Daniel's face is still Daniel's face, this picture of Sebastian's face is still Sebastian's face and so on. So it's it sounds like a very general kind of framework that can be applied in lots of places. And if I may interject, and you perfectly described why we named it semi-adversarial, because one aspect is uh, adversarial. You are, let's say, confounding, in this case, uh, the agenda information. The other part is not adversarial because you uh, leave it intact, like the face recognition intact. So in this case, yeah, it's a uh, half or semi-adversarial, essentially. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious about what sorts of other applications we might see people use this framework for, or even, you know, modifications to the framework itself. I can imagine that it could be extended in lots of different ways, because I know that the way you formalize this was this three-part loss function, right, that you had in terms of the network. Mm -hmm. So I can imagine there's maybe different ways to modify and make the constraint a little bit more complicated. I imagine that would probably, you know, modify the training dynamics somewhat, but it does seem like something that that could be extended in all sorts of different ways. Yeah, I think so. I think it's a very general approach to um, using neural networks, solving uh, complicated um, optimization problems where it's not quite clear. I mean, it's usually a nonlinear optimization problem. It's, it's not cl quite clear how you would go about that, but you kind of throw a neural network <laughs> at that and see what the neural network can do. But also you don't want the network to do some random things. Uh, you don't want to, let's say, optimize it to exploit certain things that are unrealistic. Um, for example, in this case, making the face image weird, because I mean, the perfect way to hide gender information in an image would be just, um, I don't know, just scrambling the image, right? Just replacing the image with uh, pixels all of the same color or something like that right and so you have to kind of like add this little constraint that the images still have to be useful and i think this could be applied to so many problems uh in in my opinion i have not worked on any problems besides the biology and the biometrics in this case but i can imagine 
there shouldn't be a restriction. I think that it should work for many different things. Well, if anyone listening is interested, you know, there's a wide open field here. So I'd love to spend some time on your educational work and we can go on to talk about Lightning AI at the end. But first, as I've as I mentioned at the beginning of this, I and probably many listeners have seen plenty of your educational content. What was it that inspired you to get into education in the first place? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I never really, let's say, thought about what was the inspiration for that. It's just, I like it. It's fun. I enjoy it. It's like, oh, it's the best thing in the world, to be honest, to write something and someone emails you, hey, this was super useful or helped me a lot in my job interview or my PhD defense. And it is awesome to do something where you feel like, okay, you did something uh, useful for the world. You kind of contributed. You, you, what you do makes sense. It's useful and you help people. You're helping people. I would say it's this feeling of, um, I don't know, like doing something that other people enjoy. It's uh, maybe I'm in the wrong uh, uh, business. Maybe I should be in uh, entertainment no, because it's a kind of same thing. People, in, uh, people like uh, maybe doing things that other people enjoy. There's something contagious about that. There's something about like this being really, I don't know, it makes you feel really like you do something useful. I don't know. That's, uh, that's maybe it, I guess. Um, uh, maybe another aspect could be that it's also a good way to learn, in my opinion. It's like, I mean, there may be more efficient ways to learn, but if you write about something, you spend some extra time on making sure you understand it well. So if I write about confidence intervals, I do as much research as I can before to make sure I don't miss anything there. And I make extra sure that what I'm putting out there is correct. Maybe I would go beyond the time I would spend on it if it's just for my own curiosity, basically. So in that sense, it is a good um, method to teach yourself too, in a way. And what I really like is you get feedback from the community. So sometimes I um, put a blog post out there. I think it was, for example, true when I did, uh, I mean, it's many cases like that. When I recently wrote an article about the data pipes, the new data pipes uh, in PyTorch or um, the M1 support uh, ARM uh, support the gpu support specifically in pytorch and i wrote these articles there were always people from the community who pointed out things i didn't know about uh, so sometimes they find little issues here and there but also like tips and tricks or something that goes beyond that um you would know because in that case uh, one of the pytorch engineers was uh, reading that and said for example oh um, there's like a little caveat you have to put the in the data pipe example the shuffle after the batching, oh, it was the other way around. Something like that, where you had to be very careful where you place it. It was not very, um, I mean, it was nowhere written down. It was just a little caveat. And things like that, uh, I wouldn't, I mean, find out by myself. It's, it's in that way, very productive. You, you do something, you feel like, oh, you understood everything. And then there's always someone who points out something you wouldn't otherwise yeah, learn by yourself. And this is like, I feel like that's uh, what makes the community great. It's like, um, the sum is bigger than its in it than it, its parts, where you have like experts in all different areas. For me, I would say um, I'm very broadly interested in very many different topics around, let's say, uh, machine learning and deep learning and coding. However, I'm not super specialized, let's say, in engineering, or I'm not super specialized in a certain deep neural network architecture. And if I would write about it, I would something together that is correct and worthwhile, but there will always be someone who knows a little bit more 
and would help me or like or give me feedback, which is then helping me getting a better understanding or learning something I wouldn't otherwise learn. And that is also very powerful and very motivating to me. I think those are really interesting ways of putting it. And I think I found very much the same thing when I've been a teaching assistant, for instance. So I guess on the one hand, it's like, I'm interested in this area. Presumably that has to do with why I might be interested in educating others about it. And so I can understand things better by explaining. But then, as you said, there is also just that joy of being able to see somebody's eyes light up when they understand something or come across a new concept. And I guess there's there's different ways it comes across, right? There's like the very immediate visceral feedback that you can get when you're teaching somebody one-to-one. But then also, I imagine for a lot of the, the content you produce, so some of your YouTube videos, maybe there's a more immediate feedback process. But... I know that you've also written multiple books at this point, and I imagine that there's maybe a a trade-off there, right? There's maybe a level of like scalability of, okay, well, I put this book out there and just a lot of people can read my book as opposed to, you know, coming to an in-person lecture. But there's maybe a longer feedback process between my putting the content out there and then seeing how useful it is to people. Yeah, that is an interesting way to put it. <laughs> I must say, I like uh, interacting with people in person. I'm just back from the SciPy conference from Austin, just came back two days ago. Uh, I was uh, going through some canceled flights, but it was uh, overall a very uh, worthwhile experience. I like the interaction where I feel like it can be very powerful and very productive to interact with people and uh, attending things live and being able to ask questions. It's it's somehow different than, let's say, posting something online where you have this delay. Some, and also there's only so much, let's say, you can put down uh, as a response and then days go by and then you get the response to the response and so forth. And if it's live, it's, um, you know, more interactive. There was just like, uh, I had a discussion with uh, Thomas uh, Fan from Scikit-Learn where I was complaining about the limitation of the scikit-learn pipelines uh, when you do, let's say, the permutation importance and you have categorical data and uh, so you have a one-hot encoding, but you don't want these uh, variables after one-hot encoding considered as individual variables. You want to group them together. And I was complaining this is a little bit tricky to do in scikit-learn. And he showed me with a column transformer and uh, using pandas in the categorical data type how you can hack something like to get together in like five minutes. So we sat down, he, he opened the Jupyter notebook and he had to like try it a few times, but then it eventually worked. And this is something I feel like is very powerful about in-person interaction. I was explaining what I wanted and he was just, we were working together on this. And yeah, these interactions are very powerful. You don't really so easily have that online. However, uh, another point you mentioned is the scalability. So I think for me, it's like uh, I've been at the university for four or five years now, uh, University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I've been teaching machine learning and deep learning classes. And I try to update my class every year. But there are still classes, let's say, where you can't, um, you, you can't like totally change the content and make it, let's say, more advanced or more detailed because every year uh, students want to learn about the fundamental concepts, right? So you have to kind of stay uh, at the fundamental level, which is very important and very powerful. But then sometimes, you know, I feel like, when you do this a couple of times, it could be more productive, uh, let's say, to um, do it one time really well, record it, uh, put it uh, online where everyone can watch it, and then work on the next uh, content, right? So working on uh, a follow-up material, because a lot of people ask me about it, like, hey, I finished your course, 
what should I do next? And uh, working on that next thing, I think that's also something I was uh, thinking more about, which kind of uh, led me to Lightning AI, essentially. So um, yeah, so in, in a sense, uh, I think I wouldn't say one is necessarily better than the other, like in person versus recorded. Uh, however, um, there are certain, let's say, trade-offs with both formats, right? So yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, now that you've introduced the segue, let's close up and talk a little bit about Lightning AI. Can you tell me about what it is and, and what you've been doing there? Oh, um, so yeah, what I'm doing there is essentially education. Also, essentially uh, creating educational material about machine learning and deep learning and helping people yeah, to get into it and understand it and basically producing content that helps people learn. But Lightning AI specifically is uh, is essentially something we launched just a few uh, weeks ago. It's essentially a platform that also makes certain things easier. So Lightning AI is essentially a framework where it allows you to really uh, put together components from the machine learning ecosystem to build a machine learning application. And this could be anything. I mean, really, it's very flexible. It can be a research demo. It could be a cluster scheduler. It could be uh, an app where someone uploads x-rays. It could be, for example, a doctor who is using your app to, let's say, more faster diagnose whether there is um, a fracture in, in a, a bone fracture or something. I mean, of course, we don't want to replace doctors here or something. It's an example where someone would maybe develop an application when Let's say there's no doctor available and you have something that, let's say, people can use to, to prioritize patients, for example, something like, I mean, you can basically build anything there. And the idea here is really to make that easy because for me, a person coming from academia, what I usually ended up doing is I train my model, look at some results, look at the predictive accuracy, let's say, put it together in a table compared with other models, write my paper and be done with it. But then um, how do you really use that model? I mean, how? I mean, the, the gap between um, the machine learning research community and the, let's say, people who use machine learning in, in applications, uh, production environments and so forth. Nowadays, I would say it requires a team. So, I mean, all I can remember when we did these uh, semi-adversarial networks, uh, we were invited to a conference and um, we were developing a demo. So back then, but I was uh, well, actually most, I mean, 99% uh, of this was my collaborator, Vahid, who developed a Flask app um, to basically have this model um, so that people can come up to the computer and see how it works with a camera and how it, let's say, it modifies the face images and stuff. But this took a lot of work uh, to just put a model into this interface so that it is actually an application or a demo in this case. And how can you make this simpler and go to really production-grade um, applications? And so for this, it was also running on a laptop computer. So sometimes, well, maybe a laptop is enough. You can run things locally. Sometimes you need the infrastructure having multiple GPUs, for example. And so Lightning is uh, a framework that solves all of these problems. So you can develop a research demo where... You have, for example, a Gradio or a Streamlit interface. You have something that uh, runs your model. It trains it. Once it's trained, it's deployed into this interface. And then let's say it shuts down these GPUs because your training is finished. You can have a cheaper GPU just for serving it and you can share it with others. And making this really simple, like making this possible in days and not weeks, essentially. And on top of that, you know what one restriction is, I think, you can have a lot of cool apps and you can share them. But how would uh, someone else build that? I mean, it is much easier than, let's say, using something else, like building it from scratch by using these pre-built components. However, 
it's still, I would say, a learning curve to come up with something like where you, you build like your X-ray classifier or something like that. So the idea is also that we have a gallery where people can uh, put their apps on. It's uh, not required, but you can make that public. You can put your app on there and then people can clone it and then modify it. So instead of um, starting from scratch, you use a working app and make modifications. So maybe you don't need an X-ray classifier. Maybe you need something for, um, I don't know, like uh, identifying bird species or something like that. So you can just swap up the classifier. You don't have to re-engineer the whole thing, right? And this is also how I usually work. So when I do research, for every research project, I start with one of my previous projects or also for teaching. I rarely would code something from scratch because you are duplicating efforts. You are really reinventing the wheel. And that's exactly what we are trying to avoid. We, we try to have this gallery of examples that people can reuse, clone, modify. And then what's really nice is you can run it on your computer can change one line of code. It runs on one GPU, four GPU, however many you need. And this whole thing is open source also, I should mention. The only uh, re uh, thing is when you run it on the cloud, it's using uh, the Lightning Cloud where you have, let's say, uh, you can have, if you run it on a CPU, it is free. But if you want to, let's say, have four GPUs, you have to pay a small hourly fee, of course, to rent these GPUs for the time you need it. But other than that, it's an open source framework. Everyone can contribute. You can uh, share your components and your apps. You don't have to. But yeah, that's that's the whole idea behind it, making this whole process of taking a model and building an application easier. That's very neat. And as you've already pointed out, this is solving a really important problem that I can see kind of everywhere. It's definitely a pretty big gap between, as you said, the the research code that gets produced and then actually deploying it somewhere and that requirement of, of manpower and time and just large teams and coordination to do that does make it really difficult, I think, to operationalize and really make ML systems as useful as they can be. So I am very mm -hmm. excited to see more companies like Lightning that are pursuing mm -hmm. this. One little thing I wanted to say about that is also, yeah, you don't need to be a company to, let's say, take advantage of this uh, to build your application faster with a let's say, with reducing your costs of getting to production. But also as a researcher, I think, and now it's 2022, we went through this phase where I remember when I started, it was cool when you uploaded your code on GitHub. You were like, okay, you are maybe in the top, let's say, 5% uh, of uh, people who make your code reproducible, and which was good for science to make this code available and reproducible. Nowadays, also, many people or bigger companies, they write, write blog posts to make the research more understandable and more accessible, which I think is also important. But yeah, what is really the next thing of having uh, your research more accessible or, let's say, relatable? It's, I think, really developing an application. If you, uh, if you have a conference paper, you get invited. Wouldn't it be great if you also have a demo where you can really showcase your research rather than showing a paper or a poster where everything is static? And I think... Lightning AI also for researchers, even if you don't want to productionize your model, it's really uh, nice to have this option where you can very easily make a working demo of your research to really, um, I don't know, showcase it and have people interact with it, um, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I, I do think that prospect of, you know, something visual that people can really interact with is a fantastic way to get folks more engaged with what it is you're building. So... To actually close out here, I'd, I'd like to end with maybe just one final question, which is a bit more broad than Lightning AI. As somebody who spends so much time 
in AI education yourself and, you know, as an academic, if you could give just one piece of advice to other educators who are maybe not as far along the path as you are, what would you like to impart to them from your own experience? I would say it's important to have a big picture of how different uh, of the different topics so you know how things connect. But like we uh, talked about earlier, it's maybe not feasible to do everything in super much uh, detailed uh, manner. Like you don't have to understand maybe everything in detail. It would be good to understand uh, the overall ideas of everything, but then maybe focusing on one thing and doing one thing well than being all over the place. And this is also true for me. I uh, I always have to remind myself I can't do everything. Even there are so many interested, interesting things I want to do, I have to scale back and say, okay, I can do this one thing or this uh, handful of things very well. But if I want to do more, it would be at the cost of these things. So prioritizing and maybe being focused. I think focus is a good question, uh, good uh, good uh, advice, because otherwise you end up doing a little bit of everything, but nothing really well. And that is, I think it's not uh, also getting you to the best potential and putting something useful out there. I think nowadays, so many people produce so much awesome content. If you want to, let's say, really contribute and do something uh, that people find useful, it would be going into more detail uh, in certain ways that is not, let's say, covered so far. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. It's definitely a process of figuring out what is that kind of niche that can be offered. Sorry, uh, if I have one, now I have basically the thing I wanted to say is you really need to also find something you are excited about. I think uh, if there is something you're excited about, you will automatically produce something great. Uh, I think if you... Picking a topic that is maybe hot and important, but you're not excited about, I don't think this will be something where you where you enjoy the work and produce something that's awesome. I think uh, finding what you're excited about and focusing on that, I think that is my advice, maybe. I think that's really vital. Yeah. So for our listeners who might like to learn a little bit more about you and your work, where would you send them? I would say uh, my website um, and maybe Twitter. <laughs> so on Twitter, uh, I am R-A-S-B-T. So the, that's because I was back in the day trying to minimize the characters, the number of characters, because they went into your character limit. R-A for the first initials of my last name and then S-B-T just for Sebastian. Um, so anyways, uh, on, I'm very active on Twitter and on my website. Uh, sebastianroshka.com. That's usually where I collect everything. It's um, my research, my open source projects, links to my courses and uh, things like that, talks, links to talks and so forth. Everything I do basically is on my website in some form. So that might be a good uh, landing page if someone is interested. Also my books, <laughs> not the books themselves because they were uh, published with a publisher. So they wouldn't like if I would put the PDF up there, but at least links to the books. <laughs> um, yeah. Lovely. Well, I'll include all of those links in the show notes. And thank you once again for coming to appear on the podcast today. It was wonderful speaking with you. Yeah, thanks uh, for the invitation. I really enjoyed this and I will keep reading and listening to The Gradient, which is actually a great resource. And thanks so much for putting it out there, making it a resource freely available to others. It's awesome. That's a wrap for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of The Gradient Podcast. You can find our podcasts, newsletter, and other articles from thegradient.pub. 
and our Substack at thegradientpub.substack.com. If you liked the episode, please consider supporting us by sharing it with a friend or subscribing. And as always, we appreciate your ratings and feedback. See you in the next episode.